I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring email. What do fine dining, Walmart, and subpar s'mores all have in common? Today's guest on the show, Michael Tierney. I'm sitting down with Mike, the founder and CEO of the marshmallow brand that has exploded onto the scene, Stuffed Puffs. We talk about his journey from fine dining to innovating within consumer packaged goods, creating new manufacturing techniques, launching a brand nationwide in Walmart, and partnering with world-famous DJs. We'll explore how the self-proclaimed tinkerer worked through adversity and, with a foundation of overarching optimism, proved everyone wrong. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Where, uh, where are you based out of? I am uh, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Lehigh Valley. Are you from that area? No, I'm actually from New York originally. How, uh, how did you end up in, in that area? How does one end up in the Lehigh Valley? It's a great yeah, question. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we took an investment from a growth equity group called Factory, and uh, they're based here. And when we went to look at building the second Stuff Puffs manufacturing facility, we selected the Lehigh Valley as the best location for us. Um, you can reach about 40% of Americans within eight hours on a truck from this, this area. And so it's very uh, heavy manufacturing distribution location. Uh, you're pretty close to Route 80. Uh, you're pretty close to I-95. So you can kind of stretch the entire country. Uh, and you're in a Pennsylvania tax base and not New Jersey or New York. So that's why it's a, it's a pretty friendly area for, for all of that. Super specific. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what's your background before launching the brand? So I uh, don't have the Wharton MBA background that you would typically see. I actually went to the Connors of America and went to culinary school out of college. Uh, and then I worked in some three Michelin star fine dining restaurants like the French Laundry out in Napa Valley and 11 Madison Park in New York City. Uh, but I had this idea for Stuff Puffs a few years before I, I kind of folded up my tent on fine dining and I couldn't shake it. And so I, uh, I decided one day that I was going to leave fine dining and take six months and see if I could make something of this, uh, this passion project. And so here we are just about 10 years later, uh, and I haven't, oh my God. Uh, haven't cooked professionally since. Yeah, there's a whole backstory to Stuff Puffs that predates our launch in 2019. That is so wild. And another company were... I built in between. Like there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot under the surface. Did, uh, what did people think when you were exiting out of the fine dining? I feel like those, these are like the two most opposite seeming industries ever find out. Yeah, I, I didn't become like a court judge or something, but yeah, it's, it's pretty close to, <laughs> yeah, to as diametrically yeah, opposed <laughs> as you could be. Uh, 
I think at first people were excited, uh, you know, oh, this is cool. You're going to go start your own brand. Um, I'm sure there was betting pools all over, you know, my friend networks or even family networks of like, there's no way this is going to work. Uh, but then as time went on, I have to imagine my, you know, Vegas line spread on odds got pretty wild because, uh, every time we would hit some sort of like Chernobyl style speed bump, I'd have to go back, you know, starting from the beginning and start almost over again. And you do that so many times over a period of years. And it's, you know, it's, it's truly just perseverance that keeps you going because everybody else is like, what are you still doing, doing this? Like, this is, you know, this, this can't work at this point. And, uh, and I just didn't see it that way. So how did you, how did you initially start? Uh, I'm curious about the whole backstory before the official stuff. For the, the story launch. before the yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause it uh, sounds like it got wild at multiple points. Yeah. There's, there were some interesting points in it. Um, so I had this idea back in 2008, 2009, I was sitting around a campfire, um, friend's backyard and I never really liked s'mores all that much. And I wasn't like a marshmallow junkie. Uh, and you know, summer party, uh, s'mores are out, fire pits are out. And I said, ah, I'll, I'll give this another shot and see if this is any good. And so just like everyone else, drop, drop a marshmallow on a stick, throw it over the fire, uh, plop it, you know, clumsily try and balance graham crackers and chocolate and all of this and put it together, uh, and bite into it. And you're like, ah, this is not that good. I don't know why everyone is so obsessed with this. <laughs> And for me, the problem was that the chocolate doesn't melt. It doesn't look like the TV commercial. It doesn't look like the marketing material out there. Uh, it's cold. It's hard. It skates around the graham cracker like a hockey puck on ice. And I said, okay, I'm going to take another crack at this, right? I was like, I probably just screwed the first one. up. And I don't know how many of these things I made repetitiously trying to, you know, crack the code. And I'm sitting there going, man, I've worked in some of the best restaurants in the world how can I figure out how to do this? Uh, and I think it comes down to the fact that it's not a culinary problem. It's a physics issue. It's a thermodynamics issue is why it doesn't work. And so uh, I ripped a marshmallow in half and I seamed some chocolate in it and I gingerly folded it back up like some fine dining dish. And I put it over the fire and you know, slowly roasted it. And then I bit into it. And of course it was liquid gold chocolate everywhere. And I'm like, okay, that's really good. That's what we should be making. And so I made a bunch of these and I started passing them out to people and everyone's like, oh my God, this is the best s'more I've ever had. Why don't they put chocolate on the inside? This is like a million dollar idea. And I'm going, wow, a million dollars. That would be, that would be awesome. Uh, and so, you know, party ends, everyone moves on with their life. I don't, I'm 19. And at 19, you're the smartest person in the world, right? Your parents are dumb. Your friends are dumb. Everyone's dumb. You're smart. <laughs> Uh, and I, uh, I said, it was like the feeling of, you know, inventing fire or like the wheel or some other like monumental, <laughs> you know, plate tectonic shifting kind of invention in my mind. And so for the next couple of years, every summer I'd go to the grocery store and I would be like panicked going in that like somebody did it, right. Somebody's, somebody's <laughs> knocked off my, my brilliant idea, a self-proclaimed brilliant idea. <laughs> And, uh, and every year I'd go in, I go, how haven't they done this yet? Like, it's so <laughs> obvious to me. And so that happens, you know, 
2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, um, I'm finishing, uh, uh, kind of coming into the end of, of, my time at 11 Madison Park, we, I got there right before things got really, um, my timing was great. Like we just became the hottest restaurant on the planet, uh, during the time I was there. And it was such a cool experience to watch, watch that whole run. So at the French laundry, they were already the best in the world. And all I had to, you know, the, the game was more defensive, you know, protect the house, make sure that you don't lose what you've gained. Well, at EMP, it was the other way. We're constantly pushing the envelope because we wanted to go gain everything. And so four New York Times stars, every James Beard Award, I think, under the sun, uh, three Michelin, top 10 in the world, number one in the U.S. And we just racked up awards uh, at such a rapid pace. And I had worked around the kitchen and they offered me um, uh, like a significant management uh, position in the kitchen. And I said, you know what? I've looked over the wall. The grass is no greener on the other side. I want to go do something else. And I really want to chase this dream for some period of time. And I said, if in six months I can't get this to work, I can go get a job at any kitchen, right? Like I, I'm going to be fine to go back to this industry, but I'm, I can't stop thinking about this, this marshmallow concept. <laughs> uh, and so I leave fine dining and I go, um, I moved back home to Long Island and I start making marshmallows in my mom's kitchen. And then I start going to, you know, Home Depot, who became my best friend and start building these Rule Goldberg machines. I have no engineering background. I have no, uh, you know, no science background. I just uh, like to tinker. And so I start building, you know, version one, version two, version three, and then they slowly start to get automated and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I get to a point where I'm like, oh, this works. By the way, I don't know what CPG stands for at this point. No concept of how any of the business world works. And uh, all I know is that all of the brands that are coming up at this time, uh, following you know, what Mike Rapoli did so incredibly well at Vitamin Water, which was like the proof case that you can go out, be a challenger brand, and, and you know, see some really phenomenal success out of it. Um, uh, I said, okay, we're going to co-pack this because every brand does that in the CPG sprays. Not every, but a high 90s percentile. Nobody goes into their own manufacturing. Usually you're a sales and marketing company and rely on someone else to, to make your goods. And so I started going around to the marquee shops, the big names that you know, the mid-tier stuff you might know, and then the stuff you've never heard of in Juarez and Guatemala and Brazil and Asia and all over Europe and kind of did like a Stuff Puffs world tour. Uh, and through that process, especially the bigger, you know, marquee names, I'd go into these meetings and they'd look at me and they go, son, do you not think we've heard it? We've thought of this before? It's like, no, not really. Because if you did, I figured you would have figured it out by now. Uh, and so I got met with all this aversion to um, uh, make this happen. And every time we'd get a deal kind of close, you know, something would fall apart because there just wasn't the faith that whatever I was doing was going to be the step function change that they couldn't figure out the first time. Um, and and were, they, so, were they telling you that they were having like issues with the actual manufacturing of yeah, the product so and that's, that's why they couldn't do it? That's exactly what it came down to. So the technology to make regular marshmallows is not applicable to what we do. And so 
I was fortunate to come from the fine dining world where the technologies and techniques aren't necessarily scalable, but you can push the envelope pretty hard on what's possible with food. And so I came at it from that approach. I said, well, if I have a white sheet of paper and I know nothing about big scale manufacturing, how am I going to do this? Uh, And it just happened that it was nothing like how you make a normal marshmallow. Um, And so then I just chased that version. I was like, I don't care what everyone else is doing because clearly that doesn't work. I'm sure you spent money wisely and you tried to figure this out and et cetera, et cetera. We're going to do it this way. Uh, And so that's how, that's how we got started down that path. And, and that path, you mean being different from what most people were doing in the sense that you couldn't even really co-pack because yeah, people didn't it was, want. It was more of like a crack the code thing. So we had some, I had something that I truly believed would work at scale. Nobody could get their head around taking the risk to letting me, you know, come in and, and rip their plants apart and rejigger everything the way I wanted. I didn't have, uh, uh, the resume to warrant that kind of behavior. Uh, and so they would just walk away. They go, look, we tried, we've put money into this. We've brought our best engineers in. We've brought all the best suppliers from the world in. It's not going to happen. Like just go get a real job is what I would hear. I'm like, okay, well then I'm just going to have to do this myself. And so that's kind of how we, uh, it was a big piece of the time decay to get from, you know, from A to B or to get to launch. I mean, also being at the restaurants you were at, uh, I read the, uh, setting the table. Great book, Danny Meyer. Great. Yeah. Great book. seems like such a great place to learn just like about doing something extremely well and also running something impeccably over a long period of time. Yeah. And it's, it's this constant pursuit of perfection at the top of the fine dining world. You're just chasing the dragon the whole time. And you know, you're never going to get there, but you're just pushing and pushing and pushing to, uh, to kind of achieve the impossible. And that's a great thing for, I was 18 when I went to the French laundry earth, I think it may have still been 17. Like that's a really good thing to instill young. Uh, and so I learned, I learned that and I learned really hard work, uh, at a really young age. And, you know, I started working when I was 12. So I've always loved to work and, and to, you know, have that drive and to, and to just do all the time. I don't sit still very well. So, uh, things like this are good for me. I could tell based on the fact that, uh, when people tell you that they can't make marshmallows the way that you want to, that you're not like, damn. Yeah. It's the opposite. Yeah. doesn't think this is possible. So I'm going to continue. Well, yeah. I've always been the person where if everyone says everything's good and everything's great and everything's going to be fine, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not that interested. But when you push me up against the wall <laughs> and you back me into the corner, like the Shawshank my way through the wall stuff, that's what I like doing. So every time somebody said, no, it's impossible, two things went through my head. Well, you tried it and you're a real big company. So you must know there's a market for it. And you know, look at what's happening in like in aerospace and, 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 you know, nuclear and biotech and all this stuff. Don't tell me we can't figure out how to do this. You're just <laughs> not applying, you know, the right, uh, the right engineering to this. And so I took each one of those blows as like conviction to go prove everyone wrong, really. So how did you start actually manufacturing? Did you 
did you just start making product on your own? Did you like set up your own? No. So I intentionally wouldn't, I was really stubborn about this. I said, I'm not launching this product unless I can launch it nationally. And where I wanted to launch it was Walmart, who eventually was our launch partner and has been an incredible partner to me in this business the whole time. Um, And the reason was I didn't want to give it away too early. So if I had launched some small artisanal version at some regional stores and built it the way you typically build a CPG business, you start in a small area and you scale and you get a bigger supplier and you scale and you scale and you scale. Uh, I was afraid that someone would go, oh, you can run a four minute mile. Got it. Didn't know it was possible. Now it is. And then beat me because they had too many resources that I couldn't catch up with. So I was real stubborn about for doing this, we're doing it right. And we're doing it big. Uh, and that cost a ton of time, but uh, I think ultimately it was worth it. I'm, yeah, definitely looking at it now, it seems like it was worth it. So what, uh, what was the time span between that point and when you actually launched? Were you developing still like the manufacturing technique, but also figuring out how you were going to launch in such a massive way, because it seems like it'd be a pretty hard pitch still at that point. Like even you knowing that if a big brand or big companies are looking at your idea, because it seems like it would have like sales velocity, you still don't have any of the evidence of Mm -hmm. being able to actually make the product, get a partner like Walmart, and then also see the sales that you ended up seeing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the biggest gating hurdle is money. Capital is always the biggest gating hurdle to these things. And, you know, had I found a co-packer who was willing to do this, your cost of entry is not that high, right? You buy a pallet or you buy a truckload or you buy whatever their minimum run is. And then you go out and you convert that into cash and you recycle the cash into the business. And you're going to have a burn rate as you put marketing dollars behind it and everything else, but you can raise in small increments. Uh, With this, it was binary. I was like, I need $25 million to build a small factory or I'm not doing anything. And so think about that investment thesis. Here's a mid twenties kid who looks like he's 14 and has no credibility in the space. I didn't go to some marquee business school uh, is telling us that every expert in the field is wrong uh, and needs a pretty large check to uh, take a flyer on if he as an individual is right, that this can happen. And then on top of it, you still have to get it to market, right? That would just be to get from zero to one. And then after that, you still have to go um, to go bring it to, to market. Uh, yeah, that's that's challenging. And so the way I worked around that was I said, okay, I'll start another company because I need to save the first one, right? I can't let that one go away. Uh, and so it kind of happened organically. I, uh, I started catering on the side because that was really easy for me and it was quite lucrative. Uh, great business, by the way. You know, cash and carry <laughs> catering is fantastic. And, uh, and through that, and I met this health food store owner who was looking for some products to be developed. And uh, I started doing kind of white label development products for, for her. And we were selling all sorts of health foods. So it started with vegan frozen chocolate mousse, which was like a chocolate ice cream, 
all the way through biscuits and scones and breads and ready to eat meals. And then these English muffins that I came up with and they were six ingredients. They were under hundred calories, uh, one net carb. This is like right at the precipice of like, Oh, I think there's this thing called paleo out there. Um, and they started selling so well in like the most repulsive packaging you could possibly imagine <laughs> that I said, okay, there's something here. Right. So I was chasing this huge dream on stuff puffs. And then I stumbled into the health food uh, space and said, I think I have something that can work. And by the way, I can co-pack this, like I can get a supplier to do it. And so, uh, I wasn't able to raise any more money on stuff puffs. I had exhausted all of that. And was basically on the back burner. And so Mikey's, which is a frozen gluten-free, better for you brand, uh, that now our kind of flagship product line is the better for you pizza pocket, because there's a category that has one person playing in it. They do $900 million a year or so in sales and they have no competitors. And they're the butt end of a Jim Gaffigan skate. It's like, oh, if there's anything to go disrupt, that's an easy space to go take a bite out of. Uh, and so I built that company, um, to about 5 million in sales. And then I met, uh, the guys from factory as they were founding that fund. Uh, and they, they had made an investment in Mikey's as their first portfolio investment. And I said to Rich Thompson, who's the founder of it, I said, Hey, I got this other crazy idea. I need to throw past you. I said, you know, I gave him the whole, the whole stuff puffs thing. And I said, you should come down to Bentonville with me and meet the people from Walmart and see how excited they are about this brand. Uh, Cause for a few years at that point, I had sold it in and not been able to deliver it, which is usually a recipe to be blacklisted, but I somehow rode that tide. And uh, we went down and, and, you know, he heard the same thing I've been hearing for a while, which is like, this is true innovation. We want this. We'll do it big uh, if you can make it. And so that was it after that, he's like, okay, go do it. And so we got the funding from factory to go build our first factory, which was in Wisconsin. Uh, and it was a pilot plant and we built the thing alone, you know, me and the couple people that we started to put around the business, um, uh, made this whole thing happen. And we built a plant from scratch, uh, which was an undertaking. Usually you go make a product and you're like, I'm going to make a beverage. And I feel like building manufacturing for whatever reason, there's a hundred suppliers you can call to come in and go, here's a check, go build me a great bottling line. And that's how it can work. We were pioneering, right? We didn't know what we didn't know. And so during the day we were doing testing and at night we were cutting and welding and re rewiring and doing all this engineering stuff all night long. We've lived in the building. Like I slept under a conference table with multiple people. We like shared a conference table to sleep under. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, uh, we made it work and then we launched the product, uh, April 27th, 2019 at Walmart. So that's how we got there. And then once we launched it, it just took off. Were you ever nervous when you were selling it into Walmart that, that they, that somebody was still going to take the concept, sure. especially sure. because you were being so public at that I, point, like with the biggest... Yeah, I, I took the uh, the genie out of the bottle a little bit and just, I needed somebody like them to come in and say, yeah, we believe in this because what it did is it took one side of the equation off the table. Can you sell this product? Yes, you can sell it to them. Great. And they're the you know, biggest brick and mortar retailer. Uh, and then it was just down to, can you make it? And the bet was on, could I and the 
team that I was about to assemble actually pull this off. Uh, and so, you know, thankfully Rich and, and the guys at factory got behind that and we were able to make that happen. Um, also, but, were they, uh, was there ever any concern or like, uh, even in your eyes with you running two businesses, especially after raising money from that same group on sure. another brand? Sure. No, it's, uh, it's, uh, a very fair point. Um, I mean, that's like a pretty bold, bold move, right. Mm -hmm. To raise money for one brand and then be like, Hey, I got this other, I got this other thing. I'm a relatively bold person, (laughs) so, uh, it shouldn't surprise anybody, but actually their model is really unique. So the way they structure, um, the fund is that it's a service driven model. So they have 40, 45 team members there who are experts in supply chain, finance, marketing, sales, uh, and they help scale up startup brands, you know, five, 10, $15 million in size to, you know, 50, 60, 70, and then kind of let them out on their own. And then hopefully eventually they go public or they have some sort of strategic exit or, or something along those lines. And so because of that resource network, they were able to really take over the day-to-day of Mikey's. And I was able to go build a factory for Stuff Puffs and go make that whole project happen. That's awesome. I mean, what a structure that they had that you were like able. Yeah, it was, it was the perfect setup for both parties, right? They were able to leverage all their resources and I was able to go do what I initially set out to do. How, how did the, uh, I was telling you at the beginning that we have a mutual connection who I went to middle school with, but how did the, uh, kind of like celebrity marketing play come, come about? Was that before or after you had launched in, in Walmart at that point? It was, uh, right before we launched. So I had gotten on the Forbes 30 under 30 list for Mikey's. And I went to a conference award thing that they had, event that they had in Boston. And uh, I heard that this guy Marshmallow was playing. And I'm not big in that genre. So I didn't really know much about it. So I looked it up and I'm like, oh my God, this guy's a human marshmallow. This is the perfect... (laughs) He doesn't talk like it's the perfect thing for stuff puffs. And so I had uh, tracked Mo Shalizi down at that event and sat down and talked to him and just told him about everything we were doing on the stuff puff side. And they got really excited about it. And so we brought them in as partners before we launched at Walmart. And, um, and that's been a great partnership for us. And, you know, just a, a, a great group of people to work with. Yeah. I mean, insane to go from building one brand, getting an investment and then launching something in such a big way. What was it like uh, manufacturing at that scale? Like, because I feel like you went from building like a pilot factory to manufacturing, like in the biggest way possible. Also on like the fastest learning curve ever for being in manufacturing. Right. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we've been running a four minute mile for a while. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was all trial by fire, but I think any, you know, you're an entrepreneur yourself. I think any 
one who starts their own business. You have to have, you know, just the ultimate amount of optimism, right? You can't be blindingly stupid. You have to know when something's not working. You have to know when to pivot. You have to know when to make changes. But overarchingly, you have to be really optimistic in the bigger vision of what you're doing. Otherwise, you're going to fail. Otherwise, when somebody says to you, hey, you know, go get a job. We don't think your idea is good, which I've met with probably thousands of investors between both businesses over all the rounds of investments that we've done uh, to date. You know, a, a dozen of them worked out really well. The rest of them were just, you are not good enough. You are not the right thing. You're not this, you're not that. You have to stomach that and just be able to press on. Uh, and find the right people that align with what you're looking to do because they're likely out there. Um, and so it's kind of the same thing when we started at the plant was like, this is this has to work, period. Like this is my entire life. This has to work. And you go into something like that and then failure's off the table, right? That's no longer a uh, a possibility in in the in the decision tree. And so it's just about what do you do to make it to the next hour, the next day, the next week to continue to, to grind and pull this off. Uh, and, and that's how we went into it. And I found really good people who are very aligned with not only what the vision was, but just aligned from like a work philosophy of like, yeah, no, I can make this my entire life. Like, great. You're, you're perfect for me. Like, let's go do that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, people ask that all the time of like, didn't you, weren't you afraid? Like you wouldn't be able to make anything afraid it wasn't going to work or turn the equipment on it didn't work it's like yeah all those things happened but like it didn't matter we were going <laughs> to figure out how to do it i think the first pallet we made took us a week and now we make you know 150 pallets a day so it's huge you know huge dichotomy of scale uh as we've as we've built this thing in a pretty short period of time um yeah because a couple months into it we were like wow this is this is really working. Like this is, we had no marketing team, no marketing budget. Obviously we had the support from Mello and, uh, and some great in-store execution during our exclusive launch at Walmart, which was the first six months. Um, but this stuff just sold because people got it. The second they saw it, the amount of people who go, oh my God, that was my idea. Oh, you know, Timmy, Johnny, whatever. I thought of this. I can't believe they stole my idea. It's like, yeah, I, I get it. But it wasn't that easy to do this. Like this was actually really hard to do. But what was great is that people, you didn't need to educate them. You weren't creating something so new that they couldn't comprehend it. So the consumer looked at it and was like, that's, that's a better mousetrap. I want that one. And, and it just sold. Uh, and it continues to just can sell and sell and sell and sell and sell. So, um, so we've been really fortunate from that angle of uh, kind of my thought around how this product would be received as just such an obvious uh, aha moment kind of product was exactly what the consumer what do you view for it? like your uh, job as now knowing that you've scaled so rapidly and you're running now like a pretty massive uh, manufacturing business and I feel like from the outside maybe your number or like one of your main skill sets is on the innovation front Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement of uh, I don't really love conventional wisdom. It's like a nice 
guiding force of what's been done, but I don't like to really stay inside of a box. So uh, that's really the driver for all the innovation we do. And you've seen what we've put out into the world, but how much we've innovated and iterated on our manufacturing process as we went from plant one in 2019, uh, you know, 18 into 19 into the new plant we started building, which we built through COVID. You want to talk about adversity. We put, uh, uh, or, you know, tension in trying to get a project done. We broke ground on a 165,000 square foot greenfield facility in November of 2019. Fast forward like 90 days and the world shuts down. And you're like, okay, we're about to spend $65 million building something that we're supposed to have done in less than a year, which is an extreme timeline, 13 months. Uh, And now the entire world is about to hit the brakes and we figured out ways to keep going every day and we finished the project like 30 days late out of, out of everything <sighs> that's a rounding error uh and and on budget uh and we opened the facility in uh january of 2020 and started really running by march so we've been running here for about a year but so we've got about 170 team members total here and we've scaled that in in 12 months right and so and just keep keep growing. And we built the building for tomorrow, not for today. So the first line was all about today, right? We're like, how do we just get from A to B? And this uh, facility that we've built, we can continue to add equipment in here until we can get to a little over 500, $550 million in revenue annually. So really a lot of runway uh, for us to continue to grow. What an insane trajectory after, I mean, you were like pulling a slingshot back for so long. Mm-hmm. There's a really good analogy because you could think about like how pent up energy I had. And then the second you let me out of yeah. the gate, it was like, okay, I'm going to run. I mean, like, also just, everything just aligning, me go. Let like me go the run. marshmallow partnership right before Walmart, the funding with a team that like can help you scale another business that helped you get through the time you needed to figure this one out. Insane. Insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what a wild uh, ride also to look at like how drastically different your life is in a pretty short period of time is probably yeah, two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. Most people stayed home during COVID. I, I didn't stay home one day. Like I put a mask on and we stayed six feet apart, but we, we were here day and night, uh, you know, most of Q4 of 2020, I was living at the plant. We just didn't leave the building. And we we're working 30 hours straight, 36 hours straight. And then you fall over for four or five hours and get up and go do it again. And like we've been on that roller coaster for a while, but that's how we stay ahead because there's plenty of manufacturing plants, even in the confectionery space, that have been under construction far before we started and are still under construction today. And where we've been running for you know, well over a year here now. Um, look, I've worked, I, I, I've worked every job in the building. You know, I've, I've worked every job in the company, uh, if you really think about it. And so uh, really it's about establishing a world-class team because now we're at a point and we've been at this point for a while, but 
we'll end up doing somewhere between 80 and $100 million in revenue this year. I cannot do that by myself. Physically impossible. Uh, and so it's about making sure we have the best players on the field at all times so that we get the best collective result. And so a lot of my job has gone from, you know, building my own decks and doing all my own engineering and doing all my own this and that and that to making sure we're choreographing, you know, the perfect symphony every day that, that everything runs as well as it can. And we can continue on this, this growth trajectory. So it's more about what's coming tomorrow uh, than it is about doing, you know, what we need to do in this very minute. And that's a, that's a change yeah. from Has that been in a the garage startup to whatever to scale you want to call us at now. Yeah. I don't know that there was a binary event where you're like, I need to do this, right? You just continue to evolve as the business continues to evolve. And as long as you've got I'm your head on a swivel, you can see where the needs are. And then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm not doing a lot of the stuff I was doing, but we're still growing. Yeah. I'm still uh, do you find the, the and, fine you know, dining we're, we're experience still, like we're still helps on the right you path. in that sense? Or like, uh, yeah. I think I'm, I'm also like curious, curious uh, in the sense that I, I read that book. In, I found it super ways. fascinating and al almost like wished I had my own time in fine dining just to see the, uh, I feel like it's so similar to a small startup. I think now maybe in your stage, like very different with the scale that you're at, uh, but just a small team working extremely hard to accomplish something and iterating so quickly based on feedback in like a super small environment. Sure. Yeah, I think it was really applicable to what we did uh, at the beginning, especially in Wisconsin. Um, but I also think it's applicable to everything I do every day. I mean, like I said, I started working in the food industry when I was 12 because I wanted to, not because I needed to. I wasn't even getting paid. I was doing it voluntarily because I wanted to learn. I wanted to work. Uh, and then going to a place with the standards and the caliber that Thomas Keller and Corey Lee and Tim Hollingsworth and the team at French Laundry had built to that time was, you know, you're 18, 17, you're so malleable. And then you learn how to work 16, 18 hour days at incredibly high standards in incredibly stressful situations. Um, and that kind of molds you a little bit. You're like, you know, that's, that's your work experience where most people were hanging out for the summers or whatever they were doing, you know, at 18, I was doing that. And uh, uh, I think it really sets, sets kind of a mold on what your expectation is for work. Uh, and, uh, and that's really, you know, really formative time in my life. Um, and so I think a lot of that is applicable from fine dining to this is like high speed, high precision, you know, really dedicated to the craft work insane hours and, uh, and all that comes with that. That's very much a benefit that I was in that world that I could apply that to this because, the corporate America world, and I'm putting a huge umbrella over that. So I'm not picking on anyone in, in particular, but there's a lot of bureaucracy in that world, especially at high, you know, large scale. 
bureaucracy creates red tape, which creates low speed, which creates high friction, which creates an environment where nothing gets done. Uh, fine dining is the opposite of that. And so uh, we apply a lot of that here. Um, I think what's really different about it is in the world of fine dining, your whole world's in front of you, right? You start a service, you start your day, you get all your mise en place ready, you cook the service, the building could be on fire. You wouldn't even know because you're so enthralled in what's right in front of you. There's no phones, there's no email, there's no text, there's no nothing. And then as every plate comes back from the dining room clear, you're getting these immediate sense of gratification, service is over, clean up, and, and the whole event is done, right? It's like a uh, an orchestra or an orchestrated, you know, dance. Um, and, and so that's really different because in this world, everything still takes time, right? And there's so many facets of the business that happen outside of something tangible that you can hold on to. Um, yeah, that's so, so interesting. That part I mean, took also a little like bit kind of a nice to, uh, to get used thing to. about the fine dining world, like uh, just the pursuit of that perfect orchestra seems so fascinating because it is all like wrapped up into the same experience where you walk away from it knowing like if it worked out or not and you have everything in front of you sure uh mm -hmm. it's immediate gratification in like a yeah. very high stress high energy environment it's intoxicating it's so much different than day looking to day, back you know quote unquote, over your entire journey is there any advice that you'd give yourself i mean a ton but yeah <laughs> it seems like everything's worked out pretty well so i don't know that you'd want to change any of it <laughs> yeah uh, sure. I mean, yeah, at the yeah, end of the day, true, it seems true. like it's worked out well, but we tried to do a 10 year highlight reel in 44 minutes. So, uh, you, you do miss a lot of the downside of the story. Um, like I think some of the highlights were just the, the, the perseverance of, of getting to where we got to. Um, and a lot of this stuff was trial by fire. So I learned by doing failing, uh, getting back up, failing again, getting back up again, you know, rinse, repeat until we figured something out. And then as you build this book of knowledge and it's all result-based from your own personal experiences of like, okay, this worked this time. Let's remember that. So when we have to do this again, I don't have to go through that same learning curve. Uh, and, and then you have this experience set and then you start bringing in team members who have really great experiences from all different parts uh, of the industry uh, and even other industries where you get to leverage all their talent uh, and their thoughts and their creativity. Uh, and then it gets a lot easier, honestly. I mean, the, the hardest stuff is going from, you know, zero to a million dollars or zero to $5 million. Once you, it, it's not that there aren't challenges going from 40 to 80, they're very different, but a lot of the hardest stuff that's the heaviest to lift and you're on your own, most of the time you're just by yourself, that stuff's over. And to, to me, that's the riskiest time of that whole eco, you know, that whole timeline. Yeah, definitely. That very beginning I, I think part, too, like the fear uh, when, of somebody you know, copying against you. The idea who has the resource, like unlimited resources almost and distribution to go out, especially in your space is so mm -hmm. like such a unique 
challenge in a way. Sure. That's why I wanted to start as big as we did. So now fast forward two years, we're in like 33,000 stores nationwide. We've got pretty much a pretty blanketed distribution over the U.S. in a variety of different channels. Uh, and nobody's copied us yet, which I think is testament to that. We do have a moat. We did need to build our own manufacturing because I know for a fact there's a few that have tried uh, and said they were going to launch something last year that didn't happen and you know things of that nature. Um, but I think as we build brand affinity and brand loyalty with our consumers, the fast follower or any follower becomes less and less scary because you've you've already crossed that kind of line and uh i'm not sure totally. we're totally there yet but we're definitely you know totally. on that path well thank you so much for taking the time to talk insane to to see such rapid growth i think i saw when you launched around the time that you launched uh through something mo posted and then uh yeah just hearing about how quickly things have escalated since then is wild yeah thanks it's uh it's been it's been a really cool ride and we're we're not done yet but uh we've made some really good progress for the last couple of years but sean thanks for having me on yeah i would love to love to stay in touch Bread, receive, bread, receive, bread, receive.